Amen. Thank you, Hill Girls. Appreciate that and worship team. Rhetorically, how's everybody doing this morning? <clears throat> there you go, Luke. You're doing fine. Glad to hear it. Well, it's good to see everybody. Uh, I echo Luke's words. It's always good to see everybody in the house of the Lord. And uh, before we launch into the book of Revelation, we will be in chapter 14 this morning. I just want to express how grateful uh, Lisa and I are for um, pastor's appreciation gifts and for honoring us in the way that you do. It's very, very humbling to receive um, the generous gifts and the generous words that you express on our behalf. Uh, And it is a true gift from God. It's a grace of God in our lives. We're very humbled by it, but we're very, very grateful for it. And so I just want to say from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much um, for appreciating us in the way that you do. May God bless you for that. In Revelation 14... Uh, we're, I want to kind of review a little bit of Revelation 13, because in Revelation, well, before we get to the vision of the throne room of God, I think it's important to set the stage. It's been a few weeks since we've been in this book. In Revelation 13, we were introduced to two beasts. We had the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. And these are beasts, these are uh, earthly powers fueled by demonic powers that are in our cohorts of Satan. So they are empowered, enabled by Satan. They all share the same goal. And that is, in essence, to exalt Satan, to, to convince the world to worship the beast or to worship Satan through the beast. And so they do this in a variety of ways. Uh, we, you see satanic evil expressed through uh, persecution, through bullying, through uh, peer pressure, uh, through cultural influences, and through deception. And not only does Scripture call Satan um, a murderer, so we don't just get the idea that he's some big bully uh, that's bloodthirsty, but he's also very crafty, and very deceptive. Scripture calls him the deceiver. And I think that's a, uh, it's an enlightening description because when you get to the bottom of it, why wouldn't Satan just bully people? Well, Satan also deceives people because if I understand Scripture correctly, Satan was one of God's beautiful angels. Uh, he, was, he was empowered and he was endued But apparently this went to his head. Unfortunately, rather than being very, very grateful like the unfallen angels, this power and this this beauty and ability went to his head and he got arrogant and it caused him to rebel against his creator God and want to be God, to want to usurp God's position. So the problem with that is he is not God. But he, he wants to convince people, he wants to portray himself in some kind of way so that the final results are that people think that the real God doesn't exist and that he is the real God. Now we know that uh, Dodge isn't big enough for the both of them and so Satan was cast out of the presence of God. He was cast out of the heavens and onto the earth 
which is why we're learning we uh, have it sometimes so hard as Christians because he's in a rage. He knows his time is short. And uh, he went after Christ the Messiah first, but God lifted Christ up into the heavens. And so now he is after the church and he wants to persecute the church. But he has to trick people. He has to trick people because if you're trying to pretend to be something that you're not, then you have to do it through smoke and screen. You have to do it through trickery. You have to manipulate things so that people draw wrong conclusions. And so Satan is very, very active in this world. He's very, very active in the church through philosophies, through false teachings, through false religions to uh, persuade people to draw wrong conclusions. So when we find ourselves, when you look at in the world and you see people drawing the conclusion that, well, there is no God, or that the God of the Bible is uh, not a good God, or that He's an inferior God, or He's just one of many gods, then we know who is behind all of those conclusions. Because the, the enemy uses these teachings, he uses perspectives, he uses influencers, he uses social media, all the things that we have at our fingertips today to pass around information so that we can feel like we connect with each other and know the world. He's in it all. And that's why there's always that call in Scripture to be wise and to be discerning so that we know how to resist the enemy. But it makes sense... That, that Satan is a deceiver because he has to be a deceiver because he's not the real thing. So he stands in the way of the true God. He tries to use his heft and his power to, to block people's view of God. He wants us to be confused and muddle-headed about God and how all of this works. Have you ever felt that way? Do you ever see people really not understanding? We have people in our culture, we have people in our world that don't, they're not even sure if they even exist. They're not even sure that everything that they see exists. It could be some kind of matrix. There's just one uh, worldview, false worldview, one philosophy after another that clouds and confuses the minds. Because the, word, the last thing Satan wants is for us to see him for who he really is or to see God for who he really is. Because then he's defeated. Defeats all of his efforts and all of his purpose for uh, for rebelling against God and being what He is. So I say that so as we, we go into, shortly go into chapter 14 and we're back into an, a vision about heaven and the throne, we want to re- always realize that here on earth the battle's real, the struggle's real, temptation is real. There is, there's evil power out there that wants to cloud our minds. Any kind of distraction, when the truth of the gospel goes out that saves souls, um, that and clarifies thinking. See, the Bible clarifies our thinking. Satan does not want us to dig into this. He doesn't want us to hear it from anybody, not just me this morning, but from anybody or any direction. He doesn't want to see people devoting themselves to the Lord. He doesn't want people seeing, oh, I get it now, yeah. He doesn't want the truth to minister to our hearts. He wants to keep us in confusion and misery. And it's all very real. He's behind every false teaching, every false perception, and veils the minds of man. We live in a culture that's becoming more and more, I guess in my opinion, 
um, our culture from what it used to be is becoming more and more uh, comfortable with denouncing God. Renouncing God, denouncing God. And it goes beyond just our cultural things that we get upset about like, you know, well there's no prayer in school anymore and we got the Bibles out of school. It, it comes down to now even um, popular evangelicals renouncing God and their faith publicly. Uh, there was a, um, a very popular and influential pastor and author, Joshua Harris. It's old news now, so I don't mind you throwing names around. But Joshua Harris, he wrote, Harris, he wrote a lot of books. He wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Uh, he has since then renounced his faith. And um, he has a course now that he offers on two former Christians on how to deconstruct your faith, how to deconstruct and undo the influence that Christianity had on you originally so that you can be set free from the shackles of the presence of God in your life or the, whatever influence it has. And we see more and more of this, it's, and this is from within evangelicalism. There's this, there's this, now you know what's got to be behind that kind of confused thinking. That kind, of that kind of trickery. It's very obviously the work of Satan and the power of Satan that comes in our thought life, our reasoning, and helps us and is glad to help us draw wrong conclusions about who He is and who God is. And it's really, really sad. Just, it just grieves my heart. I'm not sure why we, pro we don't do this as much as a church. Uh, maybe, again, that's just kind of a, a cultural shift. But the church today, by and large, is not as prominent in denouncing Satan. It's becoming more popular to denounce God. But to denounce Satan, the early church took this very, very seriously. That this, this mindset and act of, I am now Christ's, I am no longer Satan's. So let me read a quote to you, an early church father, Tertullian of Carthage. He writes, when we are going to enter the water, but a little before, in the presence of the congregation, and under the hand of the bishop, we solemnly profess that we disown the devil and his pomp, and his angel. His angels, the fallen angels. So a part of baptism, and a part of coming to and embracing Christ, is also a renouncing of the former. And it's not just the former life, but it was announcing uh, the influence of the power of evil, and that is renouncing Satan. And I think this is very important, because we... We're, Sometimes we, we're comfortable with the idea, well, yeah, I used to sin and I used to do bad things and I repented of that. But what we don't like is the idea is that I was actually worshiping and following Satan when I was doing it. Because then that really sounds evil. Like, to sin and those kind of things and, and, and the bad things I did as a kid, but you're going to tell me that I was actually following Satan? That, that I was deceived by him? And was was taking the carrot at the end of the stick. That's what Scripture tells us. That if we're already condemned, we're already in the grip of Satan, 
if we have not renounced Him and embraced Christ. So I say all that just to emphasize the importance of recognizing evil for what it is. I mean, we have this whole book of Revelation and much of it is identifying evil in very dramatic and exaggerated terms because sometimes we need to be shaken up. Evil exists. It's around every corner. It's, it's, it's on the bookshelves. It's in the computer. It's through the airwaves. It exists and we need to resist it and be on our guard against it. So as much as you know, we think about this and then we look at Revelation and we're real excited about the return of Christ and, and now evil is being faced and confronted and, and judged like it deserves to be judged. And I get excited about that. And I get excited about the day where that will come when we will live in a kingdom with each other. And there will be no presence, not a single molecule of evil influence. We don't know what that's like yet. We can't even fathom because it's so antithetical to our everyday experience. And we have it pretty good historically. I mean, we're a very prosperous, well-cared-for people. But it's still going to blow our socks off. Then you have that tension. That revelation in Scripture really, but it, it, it comes home in Revelation, you have that tension. Be, between wanting the Lord to come back, but then knowing what that really means. So we want the Lord to come back, but that, what, what that really means is that evil will be, will be judged. And that means that those that did not profess Christ will be judged and also cast into the eternal flames. So as believers, we carry that heavy burden, don't we? We carry that heavy burden of longing for the culmination and yet realizing what that means for those that did not come to Christ. And I think that's a good reason for us to continue to pray for the lost and continue to witness to the lost. So I know that a lot of what we read is very heavy, dramatic, symbolism but heaven is real uh, goodness is real righteousness is real and evil is real satan is real so we want to keep that in mind now as we look at revelation you will recall that uh, john periodically almost predictably between judgments six and seven stops talking about the judgments he doesn't just go through all seven he just kind of stops right there and he parks in a vision of heaven for a little while. And that's what we will be treated to this morning. We get to see what's happening in the heavenly realms while all of these terrible judgments, while the seals are being opened and the trumpet blasts are going forth. And we're going to look at this in the first five verses. And what John will see is the Lamb. He will see the people of the Lamb And then he will note what he sees about the people of the Lamb in four characteristics. So let's dive in. Revelation chapter 4, the first five verses. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written 
upon their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing in a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." I think one of the first things I noticed about reading chapter 14, and I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in 13, but it's the stark difference. In chapter 13, you have the beasts. They're bullying, they're persecuting, they're twisting, they're they're deceiving, they're marking people as their own with the mark of the beast. It's chaos, it's darkness. And then you turn the page, and you have a scene of heaven And it's peace and tranquility and there's singing and there's purity and there's rejoicing, there's worship. And so it's it's like night and day when you turn, whenever John takes the camera off what's happening here and he zooms it into the throne room happenings, it's just a completely different attitude, a completely different heart there to be found In this scene. And I'm so grateful. That in the book of Revelation. We don't just have the gloom and doom. But we are treated to these glimpses. Of heaven. That that kind of teasers. Or previews. If you will. See there's a big difference. In leadership in heaven. Than what we see here on earth. There's a big difference in the attitudes. And the mindsets. So I hope we can say uh, with the Apostle Paul that no matter how hard things get here, or no matter how we see evil grow, no matter how much we may be persecuted, that compared to what happens here and what we are rewarded with in heaven, it's way worth it. There's just no comparison. And I hope that these visions, as we imagine the goodness of God and the care that He has for His people, encourage us in that way. So first we see, John sees the Lamb. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now you'll remember we were introduced to a Lamb-like creature back in the dark chapter of um, 13 in describing the beast in verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth and it had two horns like a lamb but it spoke like a dragon. And that's the counterfeit Satan counterfeiting the ways of God, counterfeiting the relationships of the Holy Trinity, a wolf in sheep's clothing. But here we have the true lamb, the real lamb. This lamb has not been exiled or kicked out of heaven. This lamb is pure. This lamb is perfect. This lamb is powerful. And he reigns on high as the absolute supreme commander. You know, I know with all the evil that we see and, and our media has a tendency to only report bad news and, and just is really bent on showing us how evil we are 
and how the bad the world is. Sometimes we might get the impression that evil or the devil really is the higher authority. That he can't be challenged. But I want to remind us as a word of encouragement, the words of Christ before he ascended into heaven in Matthew 28. Very common verses. But this was the charge that he gave to his church before he left. When he came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I think that's so encouraging because it does sometimes, it seems fruitless. People don't care about the gospel anymore. They don't want to know about Christ. They don't, all they want to do is serve themselves. Well, that's part of the truth. That's not the whole truth. Because God has given the church divine authority. The, the reason that we make any progress in this world is because of the authority of Christ that is behind us. That's why the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Because Christ is a supreme authority. And so people will want to learn about Jesus. Souls will come to the light. People will embrace Christ. People will be saved. They will know the one and only true God. Why? Because we're so powerful and persuasive? No, because we've been given heaven's authority to be Christ's disciples and to share the good news and to be His witnesses. It is that power and authority that we is our foundation and our reason for existence. So God, it's not like God is up there waiting for this terrible war to be over so that then he can, he can swoop in and take care of us and be the hero. No, God is the hero now. God is acting now. We have His presence with us, His promised presence with us now in our everyday lives. There's nothing in Scripture, I've yet to find anything in Scripture where it says, when life gets really hard, stop following Christ and stop making disciples. It's not worth it. It never says that. There's never a reprieve that I'm aware of where it says, well, wait a minute, God, but those disciples didn't have it as hard as we do and we need to take a break. It's just too hard. Or We have the power and the authority of Christ. We're not given that reprieve because it's not about us. It's about God. And so we serve Him. We see this vision of the Lamb and share it with John. But he sees this Lamb on Mount Zion. Now what is Mount Zion? Why would Mount Zion make it into the book of Revelation? Well, it's a literal place. It was literally or historically the the house of the city of David. And it's a literal mount. Um, Now the city did move around on that mountain different places. It was destroyed and rebuilt here and shifted a few places. So it's a literal place there. And I believe it represents, uh, of course, the city of God. It's a symbol of the place of God's dwelling. It's where God is and the people of God are and it's where He meets with them and it, it offers this peace, this tranquility, safety, and also um, satisfaction of whole of soul. It's a, it's a shalom because of the presence of God is with His people. Now, currently, um, Mount Zion is the, or the Temple Mount 
is not particularly a place of peace because of the war that's going on right now with the terrorist organization of Hamas. So right now, it's not a place, at least the, the literal place is not there. Of course, there's a, a mosque nearby and there's uh, different religions that worship on the mount today. However, this vision is with the Lamb and His people. And they are in the city of the Lamb. And so that represents what you have here is that you have this leadership. You have this place with protected walls. You have a place of righteousness, a place of safety, a place of the tender care of the Lamb. And John wants us to take our eyes off the world for a second, take our eyes off the earthly battle, and just envision what this means to see the Lamb on the throne in Mount Zion to encourage the weary saints of His day. The saints that were also suffering persecution. The saints that lived under the Roman Empire and talk about pressure and talk about evil. And they lived under that and they're treated to this. So we have the Lamb and we have Mount Zion and then we have the people, the 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their forehead. So the Lamb is not alone. He is with other believers. We've seen this number before. 144,000. We saw it in Revelation 7 verse 4. They are the saints of God. Uh, They bear the mark of God. The seal of God. Which means ownership. Now Satan has his own mark and his own seal. Probably got the idea. Copycatting God's way of doing things. When God is determined and he says, when you're mine, you're mine, and I mark you, I own you, I, I, I paid for you by blood. And then you have Satan's counterfeit way of doing, saying, well, no, you're mine, I've marked you, and I own you. But we have the 144,000 here, and they are the true children of God because they've been sealed by God with the Holy Spirit. And they represent God and His kingdom as His disciples. Jesus says that He will not lose one. We were reminded of that verse this morning in John chapter 10 in Sunday school. So God takes responsibility of His children. He adopts His children. He redeems His children. He, he cares for them. You're mine. And I'm going to take care, for it, take care of you. I'm going to be a good, good father to you. So who exactly are these saints, the 144,000? Well, basically, there are two views. One view, uh, actually there's more than two views, but I'm just going to simplify it into two views. One view is that it's a, it's a literal 144,000 people, and they are a subset of other believers. They're subset, they're kind of like a special group of believers uh, some believe that they are uh, Jewish believers that came from the 12 tribes that were martyred during the tribulation. Others say, well, no, they're not the Jewish believers, but they're a subset of just uh, Christians who are really outstanding in their loyalty and their service to the Lord. So some see them as a subset. Others see them as, no, these just represent, it's not a literal number, they represent all the people of God. It's just typical revelation revelation or apocalyptic symbolism. So when we see this, what we have in mind is the whole people of God. 
I, um, I definitely lean towards that perspective of identifying the 144,000. I don't think that they're a subset of special believers in any way. Um, the whole idea of a subset of believers, that they're different from other believers and set apart, comes from verse 4, where it says, it is these, they're identifying, well, who are the 144? It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Well, that would be a special group of people um, there for sure. That is not your ordinary believer, but I will explain when we get to verse 4 my reasons for that. I think it's a number that symbolizes the 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament saints. It's a number that symbolizes the 12 apostles, uh, Christ's chosen apostles for the New Testament, and that it spans history in that and represents all the believers uh, that, that will ever exist here. Simon Kistemacher brings clarity when he says, in the apocalypse, the number 12 refers only to God, His people, and His works. For instance, the 12 tribes, 12 stars, 12 apostles, 12 gates, 12 foundations, all mentioned in the book of Revelation. 12 symbolizing perfection is raised to the second power in 144 and then multiplied by 1,000. Now, 1,000 is 10 times 10. 10 times 10 times 10, which stands for a multitude. So, the number 144,000 symbolically means perfection times perfection times a multitude. This number constitutes the totality of God's people, the true Israel of God. So, we have the true people of God, the true Israel of God in the safety of Mount Zion. Reminds me of a prophecy in chapter 2 of Joel, verse 32. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So it represents the place of deliverance, a place of safety a place of salvation, a place for the people of God to gather. In, in essence, it's home for us. It's, it's home. When you're city, you're safe and sound, you're tucked in your bed, you're comfortable with, with your surroundings and where you are. And I think there's also a powerful reminder in Hebrews chapter 12 uh, when God is teaching us about what it means to be a believer here on earth and what it means to represent Him as a church. And, and what happens when we gather like this and we sing our praise songs and we devote ourselves and we're eager to learn truth and embrace Christ. And it says in Hebrews 12.22, But you have come to Mount Zion. This is the author speaking to believers there. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable ages, uh, angels in festal gathering. God views the church here and the praise here and the praise with the saints as one big praise chorus, as one act of worship. It's not, it, we're not sub-Christians or sub-believers. And what we do here is real. And God is among us. 
And it is, we, we, we in a sense partake in heavenly worship when we gather in the name of Christ. Because all of this is taking place at the same time. It's just in the spiritual realm that we don't have eyes to see. So the argument of uh, the author of Hebrews here is that God is no less present. He is no less present with His people on earth when they gather and worship as He is with His people in heaven. And I think that's a good needed shot of encouragement there. So you have the Lamb and you have the people and we have the song. Noah mentioned the song here. Maybe we'll sing this song. The problem is they didn't share the lyrics to this song. I don't think we're going to be able to sing it. It just says that they sang the song here. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song. Before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So the, the creatures around the throne, here they are. There's a, there's a heavenly soundtrack sounding forth. It's, I'm sure it's very beautiful. It's melodic. It's, it's harps there. And remember, the harps are not you know, the big instruments we see today. Back then, it was more of a stringed instrument that was for rejoicing and celebrating. And they sang a new song. And when you look at Scripture in the Old Testament, whenever God did something really epic, whenever He did something really powerful, dramatically redemptive, the Old Testament saints would break out in song. They would put it into song and they would sing about it. And they'd sing about it so that it would become a part of who they are. It would become a part of their culture. Because when you put big events, epic things into words, and then you put them into song, well, they get into our minds and they get into our hearts. And so they could sing epic events that took place in the Old Testament. So what we have here is an epic event of redemption that the believers, and they're in heaven, in the throne of God, and they're, they're taking all of this in. That's an epic event for them. And it's so dramatic that they break forth in some kind of new song And of course, only they can sing it because it's a song of the redeemed. And only redeemed people can sing the song of the redeemed. And of course, only redeemed people are in heaven to begin with. So uh, nobody else would hear it here. So we have this um, song about redemption. Song about how they were bought. That word redeemed means they they were bought by God. So you're, you're just, everything about Scripture and what God teaches us about what Christ has accomplished for us is so warm and welcoming. I mean, look how He has gone to such great extent to bring us into the kingdom and to care for us and to love on us and to gift us with all of His graces. Now, we don't know the lyrics today, but perhaps one day we will join in this great song and chorus in the heavens We'll be like, ah, I wondered what that tune was that you sang and I read about. So third and last, in this description, we also see four characteristics of the 
the people there, the Lamb's people that are mentioned in this vision. He doesn't just say they were there, but he, he identifies them and he helps us understand what they were like. And first, we see that they're identified as pure. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, and that's verse 4. Now, again, that's why some people say, well, this is a subset of Christians. It's not your normal Christian. These are super, super pure Christians. These are undefiled Christians because they've never been with a woman. Well, time does not permit all the different opinions and interpretations of that particular verse and why people, uh, some people take it absolutely literally. But I will tell you that it can cause problems to take that verse absolutely literally. And it has caused problems throughout the church age. Because what, if you take that verse literally and you follow it to its logical conclusion, then, then what that's saying is, well, first of all, if, it's, if you're more pure to have never, to, um, to maintain your virginity as a male, then it must be a more pleasing to God to not marry than to marry. And so now you have just created a category of people who are a little more pure than other believers. And that's a problem, of course, because Scripture goes to great lengths to tell us how beautiful marriage is and how God designed marriage and how marriage is a metaphor that it's a, it's a show and the world show and tell of a covenant making God that loves his people, is committed to his people, and cares for his people through thick and thin. So we have to be careful with how we take that and how we understand that. Now in real life, what this meant was if you take that literally, in the in the second and third centuries, you had believers that uh they were down on marriage. They didn't want anything to do with marriage because they thought they could be super Christians by staying celibate. And there were whole movements um, that took place. So you were a better Christian if you remained celibate there. Some men in the second century even castrated themselves because they wanted to be in that category of being uh, pure virgins. They didn't want to have to worry about the temptation and so forth. They wanted to be a part of the 144,000. So you can say that these are just a few instances of when you take it literal, it has problems. Not to mention the fact that that would excludes women right off the bat because we're just talking about men that um, remained virgins. Uh, secondly, it disregards Scripture's high view of marriage. And there is, uh, Scripture wouldn't say that celibacy is any better than marriage or marriage is any better than celibacy. There's a place for both. There's room for both in God's kingdom. He calls people to both of those categories. So one is not any better than the other. One does not get you any closer to God than the other. There's, there are just two entities there. Whereas some people in the world are called to both. You had, um, you had the Apostle Peter who was, I'm assuming happily married and a servant of God, an apostle. You had Paul who was not married, a servant of God and an apostle. Now Paul had a little more time than Peter because Peter had different responsibilities. Marriage brings responsibilities with it. But neither one of these are not to be juxtaposed or compared to one another as far as 
who is a higher ranking believer in these. Further, uh, figuratively, all of God's people are the bride of Christ. We're all the bride of Christ, male and female. And the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, For I feel a divine jealousy for you. He's talking about the church there. You know the Corinthian church. He, finds, uh, he feels a divine jealousy since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So what, is, what does all this mean? Well, if you put all of this together, I think it's, to me it's obvious that this purity is a spiritual purity. Because the big problem in Scripture wasn't, you know, marriage and celibacy. The problem with the believers, or the problem with uh, the community, was that people were worshiping idols. People were cheating on God in the Old Testament. And that's why we find in uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, just for example, says, thus says the Lord, ask among the nations, who's heard the like of this? The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false God. So it's a spiritual impurity and adultery. So this is describing people in heaven who have been purified. And they have only served the Lord. They have stayed true to Him. They have not served or worshipped other idols. Uh, The second characteristic is they are followers. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It reminds you a little bit of uh, Mary had a little lamb, right? And the little lamb followed Mary wherever she went, but this is just the exact opposite. This is the people of God following the Lamb of God. Of course, not like little groupies following Him around in heaven. You know, Uh, so what is it to follow God? Well, He's talking about discipleship. That's what it means to follow God. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we're describing here people that have made the decision and followed Christ. Uh, They want to understand His ways, walk in His ways, emulate Christ, be like Christ, think like Christ, act like Christ. Follow Christ. Third, they are the first fruits. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits of God and the Lamb. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but basically that word can mean two things. It's the same word that is used in two different ways. Sometimes it's used to describe first fruits as when you have a harvest, you go out to your garden, uh, there's my first ripe tomato. And there's anticipation of more to come. Uh, The Old Testament, the Israelites would give their um, first fruits to God as an offering with anticipation of more to come. That's one way that it is used in Scripture. The other way it's used in Scripture is just to describe the whole harvest. It's the first harvest, but it's the first fruits of this whole entire harvest. And I believe that that's what's being portrayed here because it's the whole people of God These are all of the fruit of Jesus Christ and His saving blood. And then fourth, they're blameless. Fourth and last. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So that is a description. 
And it's God's plan, of course, that His people, those that follow Him, those that identify with Him, would forsake the world that we live in in the sense of all the lies that goes around, all the exaggeration, all the misinformation, all the deception here, the fake news, and would be emblems of people that are reliable, people that are trustworthy, people that speak the truth. There's a difference. Have you ever noticed a difference when you're not in the presence of somebody who is trustworthy? You're not going to share certain things with them. You're not going to share your life. You're not going to share your heart. You don't know what kind of response you might get. You don't know how, what they're going to do with that information. It could be used against you. That's how the world works. And God calls us to be just the opposite. He calls us to proclaim truth and to live truthfully. Zephaniah 3.13, speaking of the remnant. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. 1 Peter 2.20, for this, for to this you have been called. This is Peter speaking to the church. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. And so we have, we know that Scripture teaches that God declares us righteous. He declares us justified. It's a work of Christ. But then He sanctifies us and He begins to make us truthful. To make us reliable. And then in heaven it's absolutely sealed when we are perfectly truthful and perfectly reliable. We will have conversations in heaven that will be only motivated motivated by truth, purity, and kindness. And that's a rare thing to find in this world. But I hope that we can, by God's grace, be that people in that congregation that are trustworthy that are reliable, that do value people's hearts and value people's words, and that are willing and generous with the very truth of God. So in the midst of a world that is anti-Christian in many cases, in the midst of a world that lies, in the midst of a world that mocks, in the midst of the world of a world that does chase after false gods and, and idols, in the midst of the world that avoids the narrow gate in favor of the wide, easy path. Following masses down the path of destruction. We're God's people. We follow our Master and we are to demonstrate purity and obedience and fidelity and loyalty and truthfulness. And that's how good overcomes evil. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the preaching of His Word.